to your Bible, a custom design to your Bible reading plan and weekly podcast by myself, Chris Case, pastor of Resonate Church. And I'm here with Sarah Pasquale, our executive director. Hey there. And we are uh, only one chapter of uh, Chronicles uh, this week, as well as jumping back to Second Samuel, or starting, I guess, in Second Samuel uh, this week. And as a reminder, we're not really starting a new book. It's just a continuation of uh, the same book in what should just be Samuel. Uh, but it is what it is. Yeah. And so we pick up uh, in First Chronicles 10, and we hear again about the death of Saul and all of his sons. And yeah. I like this story here. I like how the author wrote it because um, the author is very clear about his or her reasoning and aim as to why Saul died. There was a breach of faith. He broke faith with the Lord and he didn't seek guidance from God. Yeah, it's, it's sometimes helpful when the author actually includes some commentary of position that mm-hmm. sometimes, especially in histories, we, we hear about it, we have to infer why they told that story and where, but sometimes the author's like, here's, here's really what was going on. Here's my, here's my thoughts on what, um, what Saul did wrong. And so, um, it's just helpful uh, for that perspective. Yeah. And I think for just like a little, a quick jump to a gospel understanding of the story is that we hear Saul died because of his sin. And it's clear that God himself was the one who, you know, arranged the execution of Saul. But in the New Testament, we encounter a different king who was also put to death because God more or less arranged it. But Jesus was not put to death for his own sin, but for ours instead. So we are like Saul's. We are committing breaches of faith. We're breaking faith with the Lord. We're seeking outside guidance instead of guidance from God. But we don't get the death sentence that Saul got because Christ paid it for us. So when King Jesus died, we were given eternal life and rights to the eternal kingdom of God, yeah. which is which is different than Saul's story, but it's a really neat kind of gospel connection and comparison. Yeah, yeah. The list of reasons Jesus died is just your list. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's your list of sins and brokenness, not Jesus. Jesus doesn't have a list. Uh, so when Jesus goes to the cross, it's, yeah, it's, it's everything that could be said about you. Yeah. Uh, and so we encounter the start of second Samuel. And as I said, this is just a continuation. Uh, but this is, uh, I would argue the second half of this book is just uh, the rougher side of the book. Yeah. Um, I thought of it like, I don't know why I was anticipating that it would be like really smooth reading of like, woohoo, David, like he's great. Um, And I'm not even to like Bathsheba or Tamar or anything like that. But even just these first few chapters are pretty painful. Yeah. There's death. There's more or less rape. There's um, terrible family dynamics and um, not even someone like David, not even holding his First sports son accountable for just something terrible with the sister. There's all of it. It's all over the book. Mm-hmm. And um, as much as we saw David's rise, and we'll still see some of that, um, we're also going to see David's kind of demise as a king too. Yeah. So David uh, hears of Saul's death, uh, this Amalekite. And if we remember, David just had a whole run-in with a bunch of Amalekites that he wiped out. Uh, this Amalekite comes along and tells of Saul and the death of um the death of the sons. And it's a question because like, all right, like, did he really kill Saul? Did, did, did Saul, he got hit with some arrows, but did he like ultimately kill himself on his own sword? Like it feels like the Amalekite guy is kind of making up the story a little bit, um, as if to sort of get under David's graces. Give favor. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and David's having none of it. Maybe because he is Amalekite, maybe because he just doesn't trust the guy, maybe because he did kill the king. David seems to have some sort of, um, as we will see as he's about to lament, some sort of empathy for Saul in some way um, as our lost king or uh, the king that 
was still the king. Right. Um, so. Yeah. I, I think of, as I, as we read through probably a lot of what's to come, is this passage from Genesis 9, verse 6. Whoever shed the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. So that's kind of like you live by the sword, you die by the sword. And it says, for God made man in his own image. And so, again, it's this idea of, like, we cannot celebrate or or treasure the taking of life, no matter what the life is, because all people are created in God's image. Yeah. Yeah, it's just that weird nuance of you shouldn't have taken that life. So now we're going to take yours. Yeah. that. <laughs> yeah. I mean, some of it's really confusing for me and it's hard to know, like, is David doing the right thing here? Or is he not? Because we know that vengeance is God's to repay. And he waited for God to bring vengeance and judgment on Saul, but he doesn't wait for God to bring judgment on this Amalekite. I, I don't know. Yeah, it's, it's confusing. Tough. Uh, but David does have a lament for mm-hmm. Saul and, and particularly for Jonathan. <laughs> He's got some very flowy language for his uh, BFF and Jonathan. And so, um, <laughs> yeah, so you certainly have that going on. But in some level, David's honoring the, this, this fallen king. Um, David was in his court. David was the one who played music to, to soothe him. It's hard to know exactly David and Saul's relationship up until when Saul starts seeing David come to power. But um, David... David honors him still as this king that has passed. Yeah. And now I guess isn't really the time to do it, but to stop when you have some time and reflect back on this relationship with David and Jonathan and um, the language around this, there's something really unique and uncommon about the friendship that David and Jonathan had. Yeah. And, and to think through, I mean, David, David doesn't revel at the demise of his enemy. He, he, he still sits and mourns death and, the death of this king. And so um, I think even in things like politics and stuff like that, sometimes we celebrate uh, something terrible happening to, to somebody of the opposite political party or something like that. And at some point, like we should still be sad about sin, about death, uh, about anybody um, that might be um, having the effects of sin upon their life. Yeah. So David becomes anointed, at least of the South. Uh, it says the tribe of Judah, that might include Simeon too, uh, since it's like within the tribe of Judah in many ways. And so, um, yeah, and so we see him sort of take over at least uh, this area to the South. And in some ways, uh, being pretty wise to, to sort of uh, honor this group uh, up up in Gad, which is just across the Jordan, or at least this town's just across the Jordan and to the north. Um, it, I don't know if he's trying to unify, if he's trying to assert like, hey, I'm the king. I need you guys to know that. Uh, but he's 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 being a little bit wise, I think, about trying to, to spread this information out. Yeah, I mean, I think it's... It is wise for him to honor the legacy of King Saul, especially for those who are still loyal to him in some way or another. But also he kind of is like, oh, by the way, I'm the king now, too. Just so you guys know, it was like (laughs) he kind of had two agendas, like what you guys did in bearing Saul was awesome. Also, I'm king. (laughs) And and there's a reminder, David's probably like 22, 23 around this time, just given some of the timelines that were presented. Uh, But we do find out that there's another king to the north named Ish-bosheth. Saul's son. Yeah, this is Saul's son. He's he's kind of uh, put there by uh, one of Saul's right-hand men in Abner. And uh, it kind of feels, yeah, that Ish-bosheth is a little bit of like a puppet. Uh, mm, with Abner kind of calling all the shots. Yeah, Abner. And, and in all of this is pretty reasonable that Saul's men who have been chasing David, who have um, been, been fighting against David and his men, that, that, and not only that, but they probably have more people. They probably have, they definitely have more tribes that at some point they're sort of like, well, why would we recognize David as king? Like, it's going to clearly follow to Saul's son and uh, Abner thinking, we'll, we'll just carry this on. 
David's no, there's no way David's going to take the throne. And so, um, yeah. It's kind of a little bit of a picture of like what happened in a number of different countries in the Middle East after the Arab Spring, where their current leader was ousted, but then they didn't have anyone to put in place and they didn't necessarily have like a functional operational government to make decisions. And it was kind of everyone man for his own and a few different people claim rule. And, you know, we see what's going on even in Libya right now with different people trying to take over and there being no centralized form of government. So that's kind of what we're seeing here. Yeah. Uh, leadership vacuums don't last long and um, mm. and who who's going to step in and they're all kind of fighting on this and then we see a literal fight where uh, 12 <laughs> it kind of feels like a gang fight like in West Side Story where 12 of one group show up and then 12 of the other just happen to be on the same turf and and they, they it escalates into this battle between the 12 but ultimately mm. explodes into a larger battle um, and then you have Abner who as we said is probably really the most powerful person in in that northern kingdom being chased by this guy named Joab and his brothers and Abner kills one of those brothers and Joab keeps chasing and then Abner's finally like all right like if we keep at this this is just going to end where everybody's bitter and I think at Joab, Joab's like at some point yeah you're right um and which is ironic because we will see Joab act on his bitterness later, but uh, everyone returns home. Yeah. So right now, I hope you're, there's so many names in here, but it really does help to make those straight. So we've got the Northern Kingdom, which is more or less 10 or 11 tribes of Israel. Um, and then the king is Saul's son, Ishbosheth, And then his like army commander, his right hand guy is Abner, who's kind of ruling. And then you have David, who's over Judah, possibly Simeon. And then his right hand guy is Joab. Yep. And David is claiming himself as king. Saul and Samuel anointed him as king, but he's not fully ruling Israel yet. No, no. And and we will see that same kingdom division come after David's son, Solomon. Mm, and so yeah. um, this isn't this isn't a new idea, particularly for this audience. So Abner and Ishbosheth, in theory, are getting along fine until Abner takes some liberties <laughs> that he should not have. Yeah, basically. and I mean, this is honor shame. This is like an, also a way to like exert power that you would take some of what was the king's. Um, and and Ishbosheth has, wants nothing uh, to do with this and calls out Abner. And then Abner's more or less like, I, I don't need this and, and leaves and goes and bees with David and, and actually sort of declares that like, look, I'll get the rest of Israel to come with us. Um, and as part of that agreement of Abner being spared, David wants his ex-wife i don't even know what i would term her at this point betrothed but never really yeah we don't know that they were ever actually married Uh, and and david takes her back i mean she's got some other husband who comes kind of weeping (laughs) behind her in this process david takes her back they have a feast um and abner gets busy trying to convince the rest of israel to to take back david yeah i think the author here was strategic in talking about abner taking um saul's concubine and laying with her um around the same story that he talks about all of these wives and all of this kind of conquest that David is starting. He's becoming kind of a conquester and he's starting with women and with wives, uh, pointing out that it's not David's decisions here are not exactly wise. Um, Yeah. And so, yeah, David takes in this Abner who um, he doesn't consult with Joab, who Joab's brother would just been recently killed by Abner, um, but he takes him in. And so Joab finds out about all this and he's, he's obviously not happy with it. And he goes out and kills Abner and returns. And uh, David seems frustrated by this whole situation now. um, And he pronounces a curse upon Joab's house. And uh, honestly, I, I don't know how much these pronouncements are God-centered pronouncements. I don't know if they carry any weight in actual history, but he does uh, pronounce this curse on Joab's house. And yeah, and David has this whole mourning experience about Abner, which is interesting too, because 
I don't know how much David even really interacted a whole lot with this Abner guy. And I don't right. know if he cared. Uh, I don't know if he's mourning actual the death of Abner. I don't know if he's mourning this opportunity to unite the kingdoms that Abner had presented in some ways. I don't know. But, and I think, you know, Chris and I were talking earlier about how we have got to remember that these people who were in David's army were known as the people who were like kind of rejects. They were the ragamuffins. They were bitter of soul. And so they've got certain patterns of behavior or life experience that is going to cause them to kind of, it's not like David is ushering in with this team of people, this really ethical and upright kingdom that that's David's desire, but he's always working against his own fleshly desire for sin. And then also the patterns and behaviors and experiences of those who he's been with for the last seven years. And he's in his early 20s. Yeah. Yeah. And he's basically been itinerant in the wilderness with his various men hiding in caves for seven years. So I can't imagine these are the most refined individuals. Right. Uh, and so, yeah. So as we continue to read this, to step back and first of all, not try to make everything that David does be the right thing because it's not all the right thing. Um, and also not excuse him for some of his sinful behaviors, but but kind of understand the context and everything that's going on at this time. Yeah. And then we hear about the Northern King ultimately getting murdered. Uh, so he's got a few um, guys in his army who uh, certainly um, decide that they'd rather kill Ishbosheth and then go to David and assume that David's going to be kind to them because they took out the Northern King, but um, this is this is almost very similar to the Amalekite story. David actually equates it in some ways to the Amalekite killing of Saul. And uh, in some ways, maybe he views it as treason. I don't know what he views it as, but he, he has them killed. Um, and so I don't, I don't know if killing them makes it right, but it certainly makes sense in David's brain that they, whatever they did was deserving of them. Yeah. And I think this is where in the story, when we hear David say, as the Lord lives, who redeemed my life out of every adversity, we kind of get a little glimpse into this tension that David feels between wanting to to not follow the common patterns of kings um, or, you know, bringing vengeance upon revenge on others, but at the same time, not exactly knowing what a godly king looks like or how to continue to move forward. Yeah. And, and it's still, I mean, it's a great question to ask of like, how much of the law do they know? How much of the law was being taught? Mm-hmm. Like what, what was, what was clear to David? What was clear to others of like exactly what God wanted? I mean, it, it's, it's a, it's a really good question at this point in history. So, but let's, let's just keep going. So David is anointed of it's King of Israel of the North. Um, and so David attacks this <clears throat> Philistine stronghold or uh, Canaanite stronghold uh, in, in Jerusalem. Uh, so, uh, it becomes a, a city that really doesn't have a ton of history. We certainly have some connected to um, Melchizedek, Melchizedek and Abraham. Yeah. Um, but uh, other than that, it's not a city we hear about a ton up till now. Um, and it becomes Zion. It becomes Jerusalem, this this sort of central place for Israel from here on out. And um, yeah, and he attacks this city. And David gets mm-hmm. to work on building his kingdom. And he takes more wives and concubines, which I'm so curious how how to view this only because I mean, we walked through Deuteronomy back in the day and Deuteronomy 17 in that chapter is explicit instructions around Kings of Israel. And one of the instructions is um, when you come to that land, you, you will appoint a King over you and he shall not acquire many wives for himself, lest his heart turn away, nor shall he acquire for himself excessive silver and gold. And like, 
what we see David do is set up shop in Jerusalem and start taking on wives and start building himself a, a pretty nice place to live. And um, there's a little bit of me going, all right, is there tension in that? Should I feel tension in that? Is this like David mm-hmm. not doing what Deuteronomy 17 said about our kings? And I think the Chronicler will pick up on that a little bit more than uh, Samuel will, but we'll get there when we get to those texts. Yeah. And then David uh, defeats the Philistines. So this Philistine crew that David seems to have a little bit of a weird relationship with uh, eventually decide to attack attack Jerusalem. So maybe they thought David was going to ultimately be a part of them conquering Israel. And David goes off and becomes king of Israel. And now they they come and they attack. And David, this is is a pretty clear introduction to David's um, kingship where Saul was constantly fighting without a whole lot of asking God for help without a whole lot of um, um, any sort of prayer or anything like that. And David's mm-hmm. initial battle here as this is really his first battle as King of both the North and the South is him seeking the Lord going, all right, should, should I go, should I battle this? And will you give them up into my hand? Right. And, and he, he seeks out God in this process. God. It's great. Yeah. He's going to be a different kind of King than Saul uh, in both good and bad ways. I know sometimes. Yeah. <laughs> And now, uh, New Testament. And so we're, we're slowing down for the end of Jesus's life. Uh, this is something that all the gospel writers kind of get in sync about. Uh, John is the slowest. Half of John's gospel is just the last week of Jesus's life. Mm-hmm. Uh, but um, here we are with, with a plot. Uh, there's those, Jesus finishes his sayings, which I would argue is finishing his public teaching. We don't see him mm-hmm. publicly have any discourse at this point. And there's a chief priest named Caiaphas who um, had one of the longest tenures of all the chief priests uh, around this time. Most of them were pretty short. So I would assume Caiaphas was pretty good at navigating um, and playing nice with Rome. And, and so, uh, and I find it so interesting that their goal, it feels like their, their, their desire is we don't want to kill him during the feast. We don't want him to kill him during this Passover week. And once again, I mean, this is like, all right, who's really in control? Because the people that want to get rid of Jesus don't want to do it now. And Jesus clearly, um, I would say, who is the author of it all, makes sure that he dies on this Passover day because of so much of what is symbolized in him as, as our Passover. Yeah. So Jesus ends up in Bethany. Uh, at Simon the leper's house, which we don't know a whole lot about, uh, but it should tell you a lot about the fact that Jesus is in a leper's house. And uh, we, we see a woman who's unnamed here. We find out from other gospel writers that she does have a name it's and Mary. her name is Mary, but unnamed here. She has expensive oil. Disciples object uh, to this. And we find out in other gospel writers just exactly who these disciples mm-hmm. were. But um, it, it's so fascinating because Jesus does commend her and, and simply say like, like her story is going to be told. Um, he connects it with his burial, even though they still don't totally understand that. And anointing, like it represents kingship, it represents burial, it represents all these things, which rightfully so. This is what the cross is going to represent, both the kingship and the death of Jesus. And so, um, and Jesus has response to them. It comes out straight out of scripture too. He says, uh, Deuteronomy 15, for there will never cease to be poor in the land, but the next line is, therefore I command you, you shall open wide your hand to your brother and your needy and to the poor in your land. And so he's not saying, well, there's always poor, so don't worry about it. His instruction to his disciples is there's always poor and you have to do something about it. And I think he's holding both up. Like what she's doing is amazing. Caring for the poor is still what we are, are about. And, and so both are true. Yeah. I think there's a real beauty in these offering in that it wasn't required by the law like giving to the poor was, but she was offering above and beyond because she was just consumed 
with love for Jesus. And so I think for us to step back and, and not consider, okay, how much am I giving because I'm supposed to, or how much am I offering to Jesus because that's what's required or that's what I'm supposed to do as a Christian. But Jesus, I am consumed with love for you. What, like, what can I give to him uh, that would, that would bring him pleasure or joy? Yeah. And as much as we see something of high value being used in the worship of Jesus, we're about to see something of much less value mm-hmm. being used in the betrayal of Jesus yeah. and the story of Judas. And so um, there's a lot of questions sometimes I have about like, what was Judas's primary motivation? Did, did he finally give up on his savior? Did he um, think that Jesus was going to enact this huge war and none of that's coming? Does he simply want to make 30 pieces of silver? What, what was his main drive? And it's hard, it's hard to figure that out. Um, I would argue, uh, it doesn't negate the, the awfulness of betraying Jesus, but, um, the, the initial drive here of Judas is a little bit tricky. Um, but there's a lot of tie into Zechariah 11, uh, where we'll see, uh, in that Zechariah as a prophet has this sort of future vision of receiving 30 pieces of silver, but ultimately giving it back and throwing it for the potter's field, which we'll see in a moment as well. And and so, yeah. Yeah. I think, you know, Matthew, I think was strategic in putting the story of Mary next to the story of Judas because Mary gives above and beyond her riches to Jesus and Judas um, is seeking to gain riches or is attempting to gain riches through Jesus. And so it's these two different approaches. So then we enter Passover. Uh, there's a lot of ink that also is spilt around uh, the timing of this Passover meal. Um, I would say it's a whole lot of ink that's adventures and missing the point, but um, <laughs> still, it's a lot of people debating exactly when this happened and what's going on here. Uh, but it's not as big of a deal uh, to me of, of exactly the, the nuance there. I have my theories, but Let's, we don't need to go into all that. And so as part of the, the dipping process of the Passover meal, they would have dipped stuff in like the salty water and stuff. Um, I think Jesus um, clearly is pointing out like, look, like someone who's, who's having table fellowship with me right now is one who's going to betray me. And Judas sort of has this is it I moment. Uh, and so, yeah, I, I might include a link. We, we went through a, a Passover liturgy a couple of years ago um, where we talked about this meal. Uh, and maybe I'll include a link to that sermon if anybody wants to have a more in-depth analysis of the actual sitting down Passover meal of Jesus. But yeah. yeah. And I think, you know, I mean, this idea of celebrating the Passover is deliverance. And it's when God delivered Israel from slavery to Pharaoh um, into freedom. And yet this Passover is a preparation about um, and conversation about Judas, the one who will deliver Jesus over to the enemy. And so there's a deliverance for us uh, from slavery into freedom and a del- deliverance from Jesus to his death. Yeah. From, from, yeah. From the man who knew no sin to, to dying for sin. Yeah. Yeah. There's, there's so many substitution pieces of, the Passover here, we'll see it in the Barabbas story. There, there, there's all these pictures of substitution. And and yeah, Passover is certainly one of them. Like this is, of all the festivals, this is the one that Jesus most explicitly points to, to connect uh, himself in, in the story. Mm-hmm. And, and we have the Passover supper and there's no mention of a lamb. Uh, and I think the reason why is because the lamb is the one uh, sitting at the table talking and uh, the bread is mentioned, and which was not the most highlighted point of the Passover, but at the same time, like 
Jesus identifies himself with like the lowest common denominator food, the one that that is not rare, or scarce, or uniquely Jewish. It's, it's something that exists in many cultures, and it's like the base subsistence. And he says like, do that, like this is my body. It's it's available to all, um, ultimately all who believe. And then he holds up the cup as well, which is likely wine, um, and and um, refers to it as his blood. And he refers to covenant, which is a, such a huge idea uh, that we certainly covered in the past, but but a huge idea now uh, for Jesus to pick up on on that and to and to make a claim that his blood is ushering in a new covenant. Yeah. And so, yeah, just that fulfillment of of covenant stuff is so important. Like. We saw a covenant. I would argue Adam, uh, and there's a reason why I would argue that, but uh, Adam itself is a covenant. Adam's works covenant that he had and his inability to uh, obey what God had said had caused death into the world. And and there's blood, there's there's clothes that he gets put on and, and where Adam failed and, and where Noah, like humanity was still going to be sinful and God hangs his bow and he points it to the sky as if he's the one who's going to take the punishment for humanity, ultimately not doing what humanity's supposed to do. And it's still going to be sinful and it's still going to mm-hmm. do these things. Or Abraham called to bless the nations and, and to go forth in that and to have many offspring. Yet, um, God enters a covenant with him and says, look, Abraham, if you don't hold up your end of the offspring, I will take the punishment for that. And so we have these blood covenants in the Old Testament and like Jesus is perfectly fulfilling and establishing a new covenant for people going, look, like where Adam failed, where Abraham failed, where Noah failed, um, like I, I am, I will take on the brunt and the burden and the punishment and through me now all the nations will be blessed and the works required of the garden will be accomplished. And, um, the, the ultimate penalty for judgment will be dealt with in me. Yeah. One of the passages in, in scripture that I don't know if they read it aloud or it's just a component of what they're reflecting on in Passover is from Exodus six. God says, I am the Lord and I will bring you out from under the burden of the Egyptians and I will deliver you from slavery to them. And I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. And again, Jesus is offering this new covenant um, saying, I'm the Lord. I'm going to bring you out from under the burdens of your sin. I will deliver you from slavery to sin and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. Yep. On my son. Yeah. So good. Yeah. What a, what a beautiful picture Jesus doing the Passover meal is. So mm. Jesus uh, foretells Peter's denial. Uh, so he's already called out Judas and now he's about to call out Peter uh, and references basically all the disciples ultimately abandoning him, but with yeah. an explicit uh, uh, teaching on uh, on Peter's denial here. And, um, I've tried to think about the rooster. I don't know. I can't connect the dots uh, to the old Testament, but, um, it's interesting because where Judas betraying Jesus is certainly terrible. Like, I don't think we catch the gravity of what a, 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 a disciple to a rabbi, like a disciple denying his connection to his rabbi who and actually called would, down curses yeah, from God on yeah, himself. Yeah, like super, like this would supersede the relationship between a child and a parent. And so what a, sh- shameful thing that Peter is really doing that we probably don't grasp in our cultural context um, that, that we, that the initial hearers would be shocked that Peter would deny. Yeah. I think one thing that's really neat is when Jesus speaks to the disciples falling away, they insist they're not going to deny him. And he's like, no, you really are. He's like, but I'll meet you in Galilee. Like he preemptively 
reminds them or lets them know that they will be forgiven. It's not all is lost. He's going to see him again and it's going to be forgiven, which is kind of cool. It is great. So Jesus goes to this garden called Gethsemane, uh, which means uh, like oil press, um, which are olive press. And and it's where the olives are pressed for the oils and extracted. And so what a, what a beautiful picture um, or analogy for Jesus uh, in the experience he's going to have both in the garden and ultimately to the cross. And um, yeah, there's just so much in here where he's left alone. um, He's, he's, facing at this cup that he asks to be taken away. And uh, the cup in the Old Testament certainly is connected with judgment as well. Uh, Psalm 75, 8 uh, certainly talks about that. Isaiah 51, 17, Jeremiah 25, 15 have these analogies of like this cup, this cup of judgment um, mm. for for sin. And that, um, and that one's going to have to drink to the dregs, drink it all, uh, this cup. And so um, Jesus is saying, like, I think in this moment, and, and the writer of Hebrews even picks up on this in the ways that Jesus can sympathize with us as our high priest, is that he he's in anguish. He's looking down the barrel of the gun of paying the penalty for sin and death. And on and some level, like, because of the joy set before him, will endure. But at the same time, he's looking at it of pain and suffering and, and, and desiring like another option, <laughs> seeing yeah. if there's a plan B to, to ultimately do this. And, um, and, and, but yet obeying the father perfectly when the father says, Nope, this is, this is how we're doing it. And yeah. Jesus, uh, Jesus asked three times, which is great. I, I always find some solace in like, I can go to God multiple times around the same prayer and just keep asking and keep asking just as, just as my savior did. And, um, and he does and ultimately says, all right, God, your will. Yeah. One of the scripture passages I connected with these three times is from Psalm 42 and 43, where I'm assuming it's David, though I can't remember. Why are you downcast on my soul? Why are you so disturbed within me? Put your hope in God. Um, And that said three times. And so this whole, his whole prayer, I think, is centered around the Psalms that he knew. Yep. And it's a reminder to us that we need to look to scripture. We need to lean on it. We need to commit it to memory and we need to find comfort in it when we're struggling, even in our darkest times. And it's a reminder that it's okay, like Chris said, for us to ask God for what we want. But then the response always needs to be submission. Yep. Well, this is what I want, but I submit to you in your ways. Yeah, I mean, Jesus, it's like, God, I know all things are possible for you. So if this is possible, is there another way? But your will be done. Whatever the answer is, yes or no, I I desire your will first and foremost. Yeah. And so, and disciples are sleeping. They throughout all this, they they couldn't stay awake. And and it's interesting. One of the last things that Jesus taught them was be be awake, like be ready. You don't know when these days are going to come. Be just be prepared. And yet they're sleeping. And it just drives home Jesus's loneliness in this whole process. So Jesus is betrayed, um, and uh, the people come with weapons. So there seemed to be some expectation that there was going to be a fight about this. And when we see even Peter grab a sword and do a terrible job fighting someone off by only getting their ear, um, but uh, it, Jesus is clear: like, look, my this kingdom, this kingdom I'm ushering in, is not going to be through war and violence. Like that is not. How if you live that way, you're going to die that way, and so mm, yeah. Um, yeah, so it's it's him showing enemy love, showing this upside down nature, even in his arrest. And I love the analogy here too of Peter, like the sword guy who could barely make a dent, like just chopping a little bit off of someone's ear, will become the person with the 
the sword that is the word of God. Like once he's filled mm-hmm. with the spirit, he, he can now speak and, and we'll, we'll see as we read Paul, like the, the analogy of the word and sword and, and many ears will be healed in the process, like through the hearing of the word. And so, yeah, um, so cool. Yeah. Yeah. Where Peter was terrible here, he will certainly change that. Yeah. We see everyone in these stories, you know, you can look at each individual person and what we read here and they all have their own agenda and it's either for self-glorification or God's glorification. You know, the religious leaders wanted power and authority to glorify themselves. Judas, we don't, we're not exactly sure what Judas's motives are, but one of the ideas is that he loved money and wealth more than Christ. Um, And we see Peter wanting to make God's will happen by force rather than submission. Um, And then you see Jesus submitting to God's ways. So we see a bit of a, a night trial at the home of Caiaphas, which um, if we knew proper um, protocol, this should send some uh, red flags up on us immediately uh, that um, it's not meeting in the Sanhedrin court. It's meeting at Caiaphas' house. It's meeting in the middle of the night. Uh, it's doing all sorts of stuff, like even trials over Passover time were, were technically uh, not allowed. Guilty verdicts required 24. There's so many little pieces of this trial that are like, as as a narrator, if you if you knew your Jewish audience, they would pick up on all these things mm-hmm. to know. All right, like this is a cloak and dagger, shady witch hunt kind of trial that they're that they're putting Jesus on right now. Um, in Luke's gospel, we're actually going to see two trials, and the other one is much more public and much more official. But the evening one, just like this one, is the total shady one where it's definitely this inner crowd um, who are the real power players and the, and the real um, corrupt probably leaders. Um, are are causing Jesus um, to, to ultimately come to his death. And so all that's happening uh, in the middle of the night. And this high priest at some point is like, all right, just tell us, are you the Messiah? Um, Jesus is like, as you say, and I love Jesus in these moments. Like he's fulfilling Isaiah by being quiet in front of these accusations. He's picking up and quoting a Daniel of the son of man. Um, and, and as one commentator notes, uh, as one reads the story, one wonders more and more at the greatest miracle of all. And that is the patient suffering of the spotless one. Mm-hmm. And he is just, um, constantly quoting the Old Testament. He's constantly, um, not getting overly defensive and just walking uh, through this process to the cross. Yeah, Matthew illustrates really clearly here kind of the fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy in the 40s of Isaiah around the suffering servant yep. who, like a sheep before his shears, was silent. Yeah, and then we outside, uh, we find out that Peter is doing exactly what Jesus prophesied, which is ironic because the people inside are telling Jesus to prophesy and the prophecy is coming true right outside the, the walls. Yeah. And um, it's not a scary mob that's coming to ask Jesus or Peter. It's not the temple leadership that's coming to ask Peter. It's this simple servant girl. And in the face of that, Peter can't even tell the truth and disowns his savior yeah. um, three times nonetheless. And so um, we'll, we'll see the restoration of Peter three times in John. Uh, but here, um, the shame of Peter is sort of the end of the story of Peter and Matthew. Um, this weeping at the denial of his own savior. Right. So we kind of see this parallel story here. We watch Jesus walk the road from Passover to crucifixion. And we watch Peter walk the road from devotion into denial. He insists he won't deny Jesus. He hacks off someone's ear and then he flees the scene when Jesus is arrested and sits with guards to watch the trial, but denies him. And you guys, we all do awful things. We do crazy things out of fear. Peter lied because he was afraid, but we all do things that we shouldn't do because we're afraid, but there is redemption coming for him and there's redemption for us. 
Yeah. Yeah. And so morning comes, eventually we see here about all the Sanhedrin. So, um, the, the thought is there's the second early in the morning trial. Um, and they decide to hand Jesus over to Rome who had the ability to actually enact capital punishment. And, uh, we're going to find out Pilate, Pilate's not going to give a rip about blasphemy, but we're going to see, uh, the accusations that, um, the, the Sanhedrin bring to Pilate. But in the meantime, we hear about Judas. Judas seems to have some sort of um, remorse or t- uh, changing of mind about everything that's happened. I don't know if he's, this is not how he planned it. I don't know if he feels guilty. I, once again, the, the the motivations for his regret here or changing of mind, I'm not totally sure, but it certainly fulfills um, Zechariah. And and I think at some level is is a f- maybe Judas also knowing Zechariah as well. Um, him throwing the silver back is in that in that Zechariah passage. That is the like part of the condemnation of the shepherds of Israel. Um, mm. That that Judas is is de- making this declarative statement against the leadership. Like yes, I screwed up as Judas, but you guys like the judgment is coming for you guys. Um, and, and he, in, in Spurgeon even says, even the traitor in his dying speech declared that Jesus was innocent. And so, um, Judas sinned. And yet it seems like he sees no pathway of forgiveness with Jesus and, and hangs himself, which is interesting. Cause we're going to see Peter who denied Jesus have a pathway, have a restoration, particularly in John's gospel. But, um, yeah, yeah. you know, I mean, Jesus still offered him his broken body and his blood shed at the Passover meal. And, Judas more or less rejected it, but it doesn't mean it wasn't an offer out there yeah, for yeah. him. And I don't, I don't want to like dive into like, could Judas have been saved or not? <laughs> but just this idea that like, we'll see this pattern of Jesus offering a way out. Yeah. Yeah. Before the foundations of the world to get into the, the theological <laughs> nuance. Yes. Don't do Ju- it. <laughs> Judas, Judas had his, uh, uh, seal uh, of what was his part that he was going to play. But, um, but Jesus still offered him his body and blood. Yeah. But Jesus still told him about his, his, his graciousness, particularly um, throughout his life, but certainly at that Passover meal. Yeah. So Jesus goes before Pilate. uh, The Jewish leaders kind of changed their accusation (laughs) here. And they're like, it's not blasphemy anymore. Actually, he's claiming to be king (laughs) because they knew that, that the Roman leaders weren't, they don't care about these. Yeah. Charges. And they were the only ones who could like, it was Rome who could give somebody the death penalty. And so they had to come up with some sort of accusation that would get Jesus the death penalty from Rome. Yeah. And at some point, like I'm, I'm just trying to imagine the whole situation where this, and Pilate had to know this, this temple leadership is pretty shady to begin with. Cause I think Pilate himself is, is about power and pretty shady himself. And, and at some point they bring this, probably pretty homeless looking rabbi itinerant guy who has been preaching about peace and forgiving your neighbor or forgetting your enemies and all this other stuff to be like, like, I don't see a fault in what did, what, what do you guys really want? Why do you guys really want me to kill him? And, and I, I, I Pilate certainly is not great in the story and, and eventually gives in to peer pressure or like crowd pressure. But, um, there's a little bit of me to be like, at first it really feels like Pilate's like, super cynical of, of why this whole trial is even taking place to begin with. And, and then I then uh, at some point Pilate starts playing games with them being like, all right, like I'm going to, mm-hmm. I'm going to trot out an actual insurrectionist zealot that, um, that deserves, deserves of actual legitimate Roman death. And I'll, I'll, I'll put out Jesus, maybe even assuming that clearly the crowd is going to 
pick Brabus, uh, and they don't. And uh, the beauty of that moment is once again this beautiful exchange that this one person who truly deserved death, who has a true conviction of death, uh, for wanting for being an insurrectionist and yeah. trying to overthrow the government, right? Yeah, it's it's a legitimate claim, and uh, Jesus, who everybody wanted that out of, and is not doing that, um, ultimately becomes the one who is going to pay the price, who's going to pay, uh, who has done nothing wrong, who who will pay the penalty. And so, if there's anybody truly in history who would say that Jesus died for their sins, it's Barabbas, and yeah. and ultimately we become the Barabbases uh, in the story yeah. of of the guilty ones who were given life in the place of death. Yeah. So, yeah. So good. Psalm 58. Yeah. It's pretty violent. Yeah. (laughs) I was like, well, this is imprecatory. Uh, I think Christ is the only one who can really pray this with authority. Yeah. That's that's my worry in imprecatory Psalms is to pray like, God, I need your judgment on this. But it's like, but don't judge me. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> you know, I don't want you to deal with my sins, just everybody else's. And, um, and it's okay. Like there's injustice it is legitimate to, to call out to God in the face of injustice and, and want God to do something about it. Even if it's, even if it's dealing with it violently, but at the same time, yes, like there, there's, there's some nuance that too, that, that, that Jesus is the one who is the ultimate judge. And, um, and we, we should be really cautious sometimes of how we enact judgment or pray judgment on others. Yeah. But I think, you know, I mean, ultimately what David here is praying is he's praying against unjust leadership uh, and that unjust leadership was causing suffering and death. He's praying for the failure of wickedness and the triumph of righteousness. And those are all things we can pray. Yep. Absolutely. We should pray that. Yep. All right. What should we look for next week? All right. So next week you're going to read a lot about the Ark of the Covenant again. We have not spent much time hearing or learning about the Ark of the Covenant. I mean, there's a little bit with Gideon, but think about why is it important? Why is the author bringing this back up again? And why is it emphasized in these next chapters we read in the Old Testament? Um, And in the New Testament, I would just say, again, bring it all back together again. Think about Matthew's goal to illustrate Jesus as the Jewish Messiah. And then it ends, you know, with a great commission. Um, And so how does Matthew's goal um, connect to this idea of the great commission going out to the ends of the earth. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and as Sarah pointed out earlier, I mean, we, as you read Chronicles, we're about to hear this like roll call about David's mighty men. Uh, but when we were introduced to them in Samuel, we're introduced to them in a very different way. And so, um, uh, read into that and, and try to think through why the Chronicler might be presenting it one way versus the other. Um, between the two stories. And then uh, in the New Testament, we're going to go through the crucifixion again, as we did in Luke, but um, Matthew is going to tie in a whole lot of prophetic fulfillment and language. But um, sometimes like this is, this is the most crucial part of our faith. Like as Paul would say, this is of first importance. And like, yes, like we, we do some academic exercise as part of this reading plan, but at the same time, like just pause and absorb and, and read it for the the moment that it is in, in a way that she'll leave us awestruck, she'll leave us repentant, thankful, all, all the emotions I think that are tied into the cross. Like be sure not to just go through the motions of, of reading these stories. Yeah. And so that's it. Thanks y'all. Thank you. Thank you.